This is Jim Cowan from the Collaborative for Student Success, and this is the Route K-12 Exploring Education Recovery Podcast. Each week, we travel the country on a kind of road trip to talk about the ways federal recovery dollars are being used in states to reshape education. Along the way, we'll hold up the best examples with the hope that those practices are repeated in other schools. Our guest today is Austin Reed, Senior Legislative Director for the National Conference of State Legislators, or NCSL, State-Federal Relations Program. Austin and his team have been carefully tracking how states have or haven't been spending their allotment of federal recovery funds. Austin's also a former teacher. Austin, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jim. Glad to be here. This is a question we ask of all the guests. We're approaching this uh, under the theme of this road tripping idea. So before we kind of dive into more heavy talk around the recovery and the report that you all have put out, got to ask you, What's kind of your most memorable road trip? And is there some sort of song that was uh, accompanying that trip for you? Yeah, this is a fun question. I think my most memorable road trip, I took a five-week trip through the Mountain West before I started grad school. Started out in Oklahoma, uh, visited Yellowstone. Actually, I totaled my car hitting a deer at 75 miles an hour coming out of Yellowstone. Got another car, uh, spent a week up in Glacier National Park, spent a week in in the in the Teton, Grand Teton National Park, uh, came back down through Texas. I think that every good road trip has some roadside stops. And if you've ever been anywhere on I-40 me or Amarillo, you know that you either need to go to the Cadillac Ranch or to the Big Texan Steak Ranch, home of the 72-ounce steak. So certainly hit up both of those uh, locations. And then in terms of favorite road trip song, I might say I have a favorite road trip album that I think you can't go wrong with Bob Dylan's uh, Highway 61 Revisited. One, it's named after a highway, so it's very road trip themed, uh, but it does have a lot of references to cars and things like that. And it's just a classic blend of a lot of American musical styles, which feels really good when you're driving. So you are with the National Conference on State Legislators or NCSL. Your organization advocates for what? Somewhere 7,000 plus state legislators across the country. We know that they are grappling with massive issues right now as their states rebound from the pandemic. We are obviously interested in education recovery, says so right there in our tagline, but we're facing an election year pretty soon. And you are staring at potentially a scenario where a third of those members are going to turn over uh, in some fashion, which sort of puts you right back you know, at the, at the start of some of those relationships. What's your sense of the role that those legislators are playing in education recovery right now? Has that changed? Um, what are some of those? I mean, when, when you do have that kind of turnover, how does that change sort of impact how you interact with them? So I talked with uh, some legislative leaders in education from across the country on Friday. And as a result of the election year, some legislators have uh, shorter sessions or they may be off entirely this year with, with a few. But no matter how long their session was this year, I think all of them emphasized just how busy and productive this legislation, uh, legislative season was for them. And for some, it's still going. Many go through uh, June 30th at the end of the fiscal year. You know, in terms of their role in recovery, I think Largely, they are playing a, a standard role, uh, which we'll get into, which is just providing resources to education and, and making policies to sort of manage the education system. But they're also dealing with recovery-specific quandaries and, and some initiatives. So, of course, large part of uh, state legislatures is providing funding to local school districts about 
you know, on average, one third of, of state budgets go towards education. So legislators are always grappling with the you know, what's the adequate amount of funding for for K-12 education and, and particularly making sure that that funding can be sustained year over year. And that's particularly challenging right now. I think our economic outlook is is a little uncertain. And even though state revenues were really up this year and we've seen really uh, big increases in education spending, they are also concerned that this is maybe something they won't be able to sustain over time. So they're trying to make, you know, uh, trying to make sure that they have a clear glide path for, for keeping year over year increases in education. And I think they know that that's especially important this year, given all the challenges that our education system uh, is facing. Uh, of course, they're also trying to deal with just the distribution of those dollars, uh, making sure that the, the funding formulas that they have in place are, are well targeted and, and are you know efficiently allocating resources. We've seen a lot of legislatures before the pandemic, and I think in light of the pandemic, really rethink their funding formulas. And of course, like I mentioned, they're dealing with some some pandemic-specific allocations for, for resources. State legislatures received $150 billion through a coronavirus relief fund, then uh, close to $200 billion through a coronavirus state fiscal uh, relief fund. And, and many of those uh, dollars have been actually allocated to legislation. But legislators are trying to figure out, you know, what are the biggest challenges across all areas of state budgets that we can solve with this sort of one-time funding, which um, is is both a kind of a philosophical question, but also a very practical one. Um, of course, we've seen state legislatures also get involved with the elementary and secondary uh, education relief fund, uh, dealing with sometimes allocating uh, specifically through legislation, these 10% state set-asides that states are allowed. I've also seen some states pass legislative guidance for the ESSER program. Again, they can't direct how those funds are being spent, but they are providing some guidance and, and best practices for districts to follow. Um, they're also functioning in sort of an oversight capacity, doing, you know, holding hearings and then trying to figure out how these funds are being spent, which I know we'll be talking about more here. Um, and then outside of just trying to manage all these resources, which <laughs> which there are many, uh, and that's a good problem to have. Um, they're also doing their usual role in, in, in passing legislation to improve the education system. We've seen a lot of legislation on student mental health, um, seen a lot of legislation either providing additional funding for teacher salaries or modifying uh, state salary schedules where they are uh, to provide teachers increased compensation. Seen a lot of interest in, in literacy and mathematics initiatives, particularly around the science of reading to improve the kind of instruction that we're providing for students. I've also seen state legislatures trying to figure out and grapple with staffing shortages that we're seeing in schools and either coming up with new pathways for, for prospective teachers or, or modifying uh, entry or re-entry requirements to the teaching field. So I think I like off with this by saying that legislatures are very busy. Um, and I think when I go through this response, they are extremely busy. They are dealing with unprecedented amounts of, of resources, but also dealing with unprecedented challenges in education. You hit on a lot of the categories that, that we have featured on, on our education recovery hub. And so it's good to hear you sort of hit, hit on those. It's a bit validating to hear like, yeah, these are focus areas for us because we're, we're definitely trying to hold up the best examples that we see. And we know that there are, you know, some some massive challenges, you know, involved in getting such a huge amount of, of uh, funding into the system at one time. I want to ask you about your some of the analysis that you've come out with recently for NCSL, particularly around you mentioned ESSER, and that's standing for Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Spending ESSER dollars. In the report, you mentioned that as of February, only 19% of that funding has been drawn down. And I, I say that by clarifying that included 87% of ESSER 1, right? 33% of ESSER 2 and 5% of ESSER 3, which is like $123 billion total. So these, these numbers are massive. They add up to that $189 billion. So we're talking like $36.2 billion has been drawn down out of $189 billion total. Does that 
cause concern for you when you when you see like this far into it, like that amount, only that amount? I mean, that's a lot of money, right? Like, there's no doubt about it, but there's a lot more left. Does that cause concern in you? I think it's it's kind of a question or your reaction is kind of an eye of the beholder uh, thing. You know, at, when I first hear that, if you just put those numbers on the page without context, it does seem a little shocking. I think yeah. we we know that the challenges in, in our education systems are very urgent. And I think we all want these resources, these unprecedented resources to be deployed as fast as possible. And the idea that only 19% of the resources have been fully deployed does seem a little bit shocking and suggests that there's um, some concern to be had. But when I've kind of listened to the conversation around the implementation of these funds and, and kind of gone back and done a you know couple year perspective on these, it's not as shocking that we the spend rate is you know where it's at right now. And there's a few reasons for that. One is just the spend rate data itself. Um, it's it's not necessarily an accurate reflection of the resources that are being deployed. It is a, a sort of backwards looking assessment. Essentially, in order for the federal government to report on this data, those funds have to be drawn down from state accounts, which means that they have been fully liquidated from a complete completed contract for either good or service. Um, but how contracts often work is that you might be paying out um, a contract sort of in incremental amounts or maybe at the end of that contract. So it's very possible. We don't have specific data on this, but it's very possible that a majority, if not all of these funds have been obligated. Uh, that is that they have been assigned to a specific service or good for students and that there's a contract that reflects that. Uh, and so it won't be uh, for a few years until those contracts are completed that we'll actually see that reflected in the spend rate data. For example, if you were to, and this is, I've learned a lot about education finance uh, through this exercise, but if you hire a new teacher in August you will pay their salary out in small increments and you'll fully pay that salary out by the end of the year. Um, but it's still going to take even after that salary is spent to actually you know, take a few more months for it to be reported in the federal system. So there is a bit of a lag in the official data. So that's a very important caveat to, to keep with that. But in terms of the spend rate, there's also been a number of, I think, headwinds or aspects of the administration of this program that I think will help sort of calibrate expectations we should have for spend rate. And one that's, a, you know, you always see, ESSER three funds have been out for over a year. Um, and this is, we've only seen 6% of them spent. But in reality, local school districts really weren't getting access to even obligating these funds until probably fall of 2021. So well over six to eight months after they were originally allocated. And that's simply because state legislatures or governors or state boards of education had to receive these funds in order for them to be made available to districts. Um, states had to actually submit plans to the Department of Education to gain access to one third of these funds. Both of these processes took place over last summer and into the fall. That's just for the state to receive the funds and then for the state to actually send these funds down to local school districts for spending. That required an application process. And so states had to stand up these application processes. Um, that took a number of months in certain cases, and there's no real standard state-by-state -state process for doing this. And so, again, like I said, the earliest that schools would have had ESSER $3 would have been last fall. In, and we knew some states were not allocating ESSER $3 until actually this March. They had to allocate them a year after they received them. And some states, you know, a couple of them did wait until that point. So that's just to get the money out and available. Um, but then for schools to actually come up with plans, and if you followed schools at all or talked to a teacher or a principal this fall, you knew that this last year has probably been the most challenging year uh, that educators in living memory can remember. Um, just the sort of the ever-changing dynamics of schools and and 
you know, dealing with the Delta and the Omicron waves and, and teachers sort of, you know, standing in as counselors and principals standing in as contract tracers and healthcare providers and, and sometimes bus drivers to deal with shortages. And so um, the idea that, you know, districts were in a position to come up with really thoughtful plans and immediately implement these resources um, was probably a little bit overstated. And so, you know, when you take all this in its totality, it's not necessarily shocking that the spend rate is where it's at. And I think that there was a sense especially at the end of this year, that schools were really looking to get to the summer to reset. Uh, and then this fall really implement a lot of the bulk of the the, the recovery initiatives that are reflected in, in the plans that, that states and, and school districts have put together. You wrote in your report also, it, that's a great explanation of particularly around the, just the logistical nature of this to get the money in the, in the door. And that, that makes a lot of sense. But you also wrote about how getting high quality teachers and tutors and, and counselors, because we are seeing a lot of focus on this high dosage tutoring efforts and other, you know, other teacher support issues. There's just a short supply of, of this for a lot of, for a lot of states. And there is just a huge demand for those kind of services. Do you have any additional um, information around the kind of challenges that are, people are facing with labor shortage or just with district capacity challenges that they have to deal with. Them. Yeah, I mean, I think these shortages are certainly making all the strategies for recovery that we put on paper and, and often talk about in the policy space much more difficult to actually implement. And I think it's made me appreciate the, the, the idea that, you know, education is almost purely labor intensive. You know, you you can't just throw in new programs without having to labor to accompany that. And, and there's sort of two ways you can go about this as a district. You can either bring in, you know, new workers, new teachers for some of these recovery strategies, or you can try to get more out of your existing labor force, your existing teachers. But both of those um, approaches to to pro- you know, implementing recovery strategies have certainly been challenged. I mean, on the demand side, you know, we know that there's a, you know, we're a lot of the professionals that we want, either educational professionals or mental health professionals uh, are in short supply. Uh, and then of course it's a credentialed field that requires a lot of education. So you can't just raise up uh, a labor force out of, out of nothing. Uh, so that, that makes it more difficult to, to quickly scale a lot of these ideas. There's certainly a lot of uh, competition for, for these uh, positions, especially in the mental health professional space. Our, our healthcare system is also uh, competing for these jobs and can often offer a more competitive salary. So if you're a school that wants one, you're often competing against maybe the, the local hospital system. So it's, it's and often you've got schools competing against each other and, and sort of driving up salaries potentially in the process. Um, so one, there's just not a lot of, of workers that are out there that are qualified to, to do some of these uh, initiatives. Uh, but it's also challenging to implement some of the recovery strategies that would require you to to have teachers work longer days. So, you, of course, some of the most common strategies I think we're going to see are either implementing extended learning days, maybe that's adding a, an hour or two on to the to the, uh, the the average learning day, or even extending school years. Uh, but there's issues where teachers need to consent to, to those programs. And, and there's some, you know, I think a lot of teachers are experiencing burnout. So the desire to um, add on extra hours in the day may not be there. There's also some contract issues and collective bargaining agreements that can limit some of these strategies. And so, you know, there's a lot of strategies that schools are considering, but they're very labor intensive. uh, And they do face a short supply of either labor that's available to do new things or capacity issues with the the labor they have. And of course, that's not even leaving, uh, taking into account um, any educators that might be leaving the field. There's just suggestions that we might see some, you know, the great resignation might come for education this summer. I think that's the data is not quite there yet. Um, But we certainly know that a lot of there are some teachers that retired sort of earlier than, than maybe they would have. Uh, during the pandemic, there's a sort of some strategies to try to get them back into the field. And there's also this dynamic where 
because there's all this money out there demanding increased educational services, there are also a lot of vendors uh, that provide these services, and they're actually looking to hire teachers too. And so they've made that more market more competitive. So uh, there's just a, a great demand and, and not enough supply. And, and that's just for the uh, education recovery strategies. Uh, but a lot of these ESSER funds are going towards school infrastructure upgrades and and uh, trying to upgrade HVAC systems and, and other aspects of, of the school building. Uh, but of course, those workers, construction workers, are in serious demand for their services across various sectors of our economy. Uh, there's definitely been a lot of reports that some schools are being told that they can't sign a contract for an HVAC upgrade because the services that they want will take you know beyond 2025 for completion and, and January 2025 is when all the ESSER funds need to be spent or they'll be uh, returned to the treasury. Um, and even when they can get these contracts, uh, some of the parts for, for these uh, upgrades are either slowed down by reduced manufacturing capacity or shipping capacity. Uh, we certainly saw this with some microchip shortages earlier in the pandemic that caused delays in schools being able to get uh, the supplies they they needed for students. So if you follow the broader economy, a lot of the, the, the trends that are affecting that are, are deeply affecting schools in a way that's, I think, uh, a little unique. Along those lines, like we, we've now seen more states requesting this up to an 18-month extension, particularly for issues like what you're sort of laying out right now. Do you anticipate we'll see more and more states requesting those extensions due to those kind of challenges? It seems likely. I know a number of the bigger education groups are certainly um, sounding the alarm that the, the spending horizon for these funds is too short. Um, I know that you know, there's been some comments from the Department of Education to suggest that they're open to, to talks of extension. But as I understand it, the implementation of that extension uh, could be particularly difficult from the administrative perspective. So I think it's going to remain to be seen whether or not those extensions are granted, but it certainly seems like there's a desire uh, out in the field to have a, a longer horizon to spend these funds. One of the questions I've asked all of our guests so far is around the most marginalized kids, um, the students that have been hurt most by the pandemic. Unfortunately, these are the same students that have historically been underserved. Have you seen any signs these students in these schools are benefiting specifically from any of these federal funds? I think it's hard to, to have an answer on the impact that these funds are having on, on those particularly vulnerable students right now. I think we're going to need a, a much wider lens to make this assessment. I think for, for many students, especially in the lower grades, this project for academic recovery could be one that, that takes over 10 years, uh, if not more. Um, I think this this point has been made elsewhere, and, and it's a sobering thought, but I, I do think it's a, it's a good one. It's that We don't know that many strategies that can make up for months of learning loss in a single year or two academic years, and especially not on a nationwide scale. Uh, I think we can be optimistic that we can chip away over time. And if it's a five-month learning loss, then we can work at it year over year and, and get students back to where they would have been and hopefully ahead of, of where uh, they would have been and, and try to close the existing achievement gaps we already have. So I think that's sort of the horizon that I, I tend to think about this. You know, one of the one of the things you might think about in terms of the funds having the impact on, on particularly underserved students, uh, the reports seem to suggest that if students attended schools that were closed for longer or operated under remote learning longer, that they tend to uh, experience worse learning loss. And so to the extent that federal funds opened up school districts and provided an opportunity for safe reopening, accelerated that, then I think, you know, we can count that as being much better than the alternative of them being closed and those sort of effects uh, being worsened even, even further. But I think it's going to be hard to see the effects of even reopening because I think in many places, learning the learning environment 
last year did not look like the learning environment before the pandemic, given all the other challenges that students faced in the in the classroom. And so I think we've started that path to recovery, but having a good sense of how those are serving students is still, I think, remains to be seen. That being said, there are um, you know a number of, of states, if not every state, that's really put together these holistic statewide learning recovery initiatives, which you know have some really big price tags behind them. And I think that um, is cause for encouragement. I can point to uh, the Indiana legislature created a $150 million student learning recovery grant. Uh, New Jersey, $135 million for an accelerated coach and educated educator support grant program. Um, you looked at the ESSER state plans, 29 states had plans for accelerated learning through tutoring. 31 states had resources devoted to students with disabilities. Uh, 25 had uh, identified ways that they can improve their curriculum and implement that as a statewide priority. And so it's hard to know how well those funds right now are serving the students that have lost the most. But there are robust plans in place and a lot of funding behind that, I think, to to really carry out initiatives uh, going forward. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think this year is where we can start to assess the real impact that these funds are having on those students. And I'm I'm hopeful that we'll see some some good immediate returns. Yeah, agreed. So looking ahead, what are you going to be watching for when it comes to to spending? What's, What's most important to keep your eyeball on? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm meeting with state fiscal leaders this week and and the last time I met with them a couple months ago, they were concerned with fiscal headwinds. And what I mean by that is they're concerned that, you know, our, our economy is in, in, in sort of flux and there's concerns of recession. And one of the things that I hadn't thought about until you posed this question was this idea that, you know, state fiscal leaders are very concerned that the fiscal boon we're seeing this year won't last. So it's very possible that actually a lot of these ESSER dollars, you know, if we face an economic downturn, may actually become fiscal relief dollars. Um, I think one of the things I under talked about point in the ESSER spend rate is that this $190 billion, when this was the need that a lot of groups estimated that schools would need to recover. And of that $190 billion, they estimated that $60 billion of that was going to be for state fiscal relief. And what actually happened is that state revenues have proven to be very strong thanks to a lot of the other stimulus efforts. And so at least $60 billion of that $190 billion uh, that was going to go to relief just simply isn't. And uh, but it's possible that if there is some changes in in state revenues and, and you know economy, that maybe that side of those funds actually does get implemented for that purpose. Uh, so that's one thing I'm watching. That's something that I had thought about. That you know something to to pay attention to. But of course, also paying attention to to fiscal cliff issues. Um, you know, I'm curious if whether the funds have gone to roles and salary increases that will be able to be sustained. I think state legislators are, are certainly concerned about that. They are um, largely increasing state budgets um, and state education spending, but again, are really interested in that smooth glide path to year-over-year increases and, and want to make sure that, you know, the labor that districts have hired, they're able to, to maintain over years. And, you know, finally, I think something else I'm, I'm looking at, and I sort of alluded to this in the last answer, uh, is just waiting for this fall to see how a lot of these recovery efforts are actually being implemented. I think it's hard to see some of the efforts, you know, in states where they had been open, their schools have been open for most of the time. I think you could get a little clearer picture, but hopefully this next school year is one in which schools are in person the entire year. And I think that's when we can begin to see, you know, with across states and across schools, more common recovery efforts and get a sense of how effective uh, they're being in the short term. And so, you know, those are the things I'm looking at. I'm sort of wondering whether or not the ESSER program will sort of shift in its purpose, um, you know, whether or not the fiscal cliff actually comes to pass and, and whether or not the economy holds up. And uh, also interested in just, you know, how well these recovery efforts are, are serving students once the environment around schools is, is hopefully more calm this fall. Something you brought up, I, I have to think it's immensely challenging for states when you're dealing with variants and you're bouncing from in-person to hybrid to 
you know, some variation of that and trying to keep a plan in place and being implemented when, when the goalposts are constantly moving on, on how, you're, how you're doing this in a way to measure some sort of impact of what these efforts are. So we, we certainly empathize with that and see that as, a, as an important part of what we need to be paying attention to. So for each of these sessions, we also, uh, as a last question, ask a uh, question from a parent. So I'll, I'll pose that to you. This week, our question comes from Dale Chu from Denver, Colorado. Hello, Jim and Austin. I'm Dale, and I'm a parent of a soon-to-be second grader in Colorado. I'm also a former educator and now work to improve the ways that schools measure student learning and use data to support instruction. I know that before the onset of the pandemic, state assessments and state school report cards were the primary ways that states communicated to parents like me about school performance. But assessments have been stop and go, and data we're seeing now from recently administered exams is pretty hit or miss in a lot of places, with states just beginning to unthaw measures they use to hold schools accountable. Moving forward, are state assessments and school report cards going to be as useful? And how should legislators be thinking about how their state is reporting out how their schools are really doing? That's a very good question, a very complicated question. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one that it's a conversation that I think legislators are, are starting to have. And I think, I think the main thrust of that conversation, I think, first off, to the idea, will it be useful in the future? I think it'll be incredibly useful. But, you know, a lot of the data that we get back through our assessment and accountability systems are sort of geared for policymakers. Uh, and, and certainly policymakers have a lot of questions ab- about the education system and about the efficacy of, of, of funding. Uh, and those are, I think, at, at a macro scale questions that that we want answers to. And I think that data can help. But I think there's a, a broad recognition in the field that sometimes that data, especially some of the assessment data um, that states get through summative assessments, isn't necessarily actionable for teachers. Uh, and I think right now it's absolutely critical that every teacher has very actionable data uh, that can be customized to each student, that can be integrated into their lesson plans, that can inform professional development, um, and that's aligned between, you know, the curriculum and the standards and, and the assessments that, you know, local school districts have and, and up to the state. So I think that legislators are particularly interested in how can we craft, you know, an, an assessment infrastructure uh, that provides data for policymakers, but also is is more actionable for teachers. I can speak from experience as a a former teacher. Uh, When you have actionable assessment data, it makes teaching so much more effective. uh, But oftentimes, some of the ways that we communicate that data to teachers just isn't something that can be readily integrated into curriculum. And so I think a lot of the legislators that that we work with are trying to figure that out. In fact, we have a group of of legislators that are at NCSL that are working to learn from the best practices in international systems. And I think that's one of the lessons that they're bringing back. And so, uh, you know, I think this existing infrastructure we have is, is useful, but I think, you know, as a country uh, and as individual states, we could certainly do better in, in coming up with more accurate and actionable data to lead recovery, especially, you know, if we're thinking about recovery on a, you know, five to 10 year time horizon, uh, we really do need to have the data that can help students from, you know, week to week rather than um, just a checkpoint after the end of the year. And so I think that's sort of the, you know, we know states and, and some districts are, are already on on the path to, to this kind of data, uh, but I certainly think that as a, as a country, it's, it's something we can strive further towards. Austin, thanks again for your time today. We appreciate all the great work that's coming out of NCSL, and I hope you have a, a great summer. Thanks so much. We appreciate you inviting us here today. This is Jim Cowan from the Collaborative for Student Success. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Route K-12, Exploring Education Recovery, where each week we'll travel the country to showcase the ways federal recovery funds are reshaping schools. Along the way, we're talking to people doing the hard work to educate America's kids. 
Got a question or insight you'd like to share about what's going on in education? We'd love to hear it. Reach out to us at edgyrecoveryhub.org forward slash route K-12 or follow us on Twitter at our handle at Student Success.